AM. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 17, A Violent Backlash. The Stamp Act was passed by Parliament in July of 1765 and set to take effect on November 1st of that same year. The American colonists, the deliberate targets of the act, wasted no time in displaying their resistance to it. Now, I talked last week about the Sons of Liberty, a group of common workers and merchants who organized acts of public protest and violent demonstrations. In this episode, I want to take some time to recount some of their more memorable acts of inflammatory protest during the summer and fall of 1765. In doing this, I hope to make two points. First, that many colonists became violent because they felt they had no peaceful means of addressing their concerns to their superiors. Second, boldness and defiance was contagious, and 1765 marked the tipping point after which the colonists really had little genuine fear of the British. Now, the most heated resistance to the Stamp Act occurred in the major cities of the American colonies, particularly New York City and Boston. These cities were hubs of commerce, places where the most paper would be used and the most people would be affected by the tax. In addition, the more dense populations of the cities allowed for ideas, information, and anger to spread rapidly and pervasively. Given these factors, it should come as no surprise that protests in Boston and New York City grew violent and unruly. Now, the first incident took place in Boston in August of 1765. On the morning of August 14th, the recently formed Sons of Liberty hung two effigies from an elm tree in Boston Common. This tree would eventually become known as the Liberty Tree, a meeting place for activists. Now, one of the effigies that was hung from the Liberty Tree was a representation of Andrew Oliver, the stamp distributor of Massachusetts, and the other was a boot with a devil inside of it. This was a reference to the Earl of Boot, member of Parliament who had orchestrated the Stamp Act. Demonstrators stood by the tree from dawn till dusk as the effigies hung. As merchants passed, the demonstrators symbolically stamped their goods, meaning to show them how heavily they would be taxed by the Stamp Act. At 5 o'clock that evening, they cut down the effigies and carried them down the street as protesters shouted, Liberty, property, and no stamps. They paraded to the home of Andrew Oliver and there beheaded his likeness in front of him on his own front lawn. Then they stoned his house and burned him in effigy. Finally, they marched to the Boston stamp office and tore it down. Two weeks later, Boston activists had only been encouraged and further enraged by this type of demonstration. And so on the night of August 26th, protesters started a bonfire in the street near the Liberty Tree. They gathered around the bonfire and marched to the home of Thomas Hutchinson, then the Chief Justice of Massachusetts and a staunch loyalist. Now, if you remember, Hutchinson was also a close friend of Benjamin Franklin. In spite of this connection, he was quite unpopular among the colonists in Boston. When the demonstrators reached his home, they smashed his windows, ransacked his house, destroyed his furniture, burned a large portion of his personal papers, and even tore the paneling off his walls. Hutchinson and his family barely escaped the chaos of the mob, and his home was left as a mere shell of its former self, with walls ripped out and a portion of the roof caved in. The next day, Samuel Adams, traditionally an inflammatory opponent of British royal prerogative, publicly condemned the violence. He called the perpetrators a lawless, unknown rabble. Though many believe that Adams was affiliated with the Sons of Liberty at this point, he chose to publicly distance himself from their violent actions, 
because it was important for him to retain his influential reputation. However, despite Adams' public denunciation of the activities of the Boston protesters, the Sons of Liberty had started something big. Chapters were started in the following weeks all over the 13 colonies, and with them other liberty trees popped up in numerous cities. The trees became places for activists to gather, organize protests and rallies, and post propaganda. In the years to come, they were even sites of violent action, such as the tarring and feathering of British officials. Unfortunately, the original Liberty Tree in Boston was cut down by the British Army during their 10-month occupation of the city in 1775. But this is a testament to the tree's influential reputation during those important years of defiance. Now, the next month, protests flared up in Virginia, and Richard Henry Lee, who would become a signer of the Declaration of Independence and later a senator from Virginia, led a powerful demonstration against the Stamp Act. A crowd marched down the streets of Montrose, Virginia, carrying effigies of George Grenville, then the British Lord of the Treasury, and George Mercer, the appointed stamp distributor of Virginia. Mercer was particularly reviled as he was born in America and was educated at the College of William and Mary. The colonists viewed his appointment to the post of stamp distributor as treachery, and he became a prime target of the colonists' hatred. When the mob reached the Montrose courthouse, they hung the effigies of Grenville and Mercer. And the next day, they hanged them again and burned them while Lee read, read aloud what he called the dying words of Mercer, which Lee himself had composed. This speech, delivered in the first person, condemned Mercer as a traitor to his homeland and an agent of the tyrannical British crown. Lee wrote in the supposed words of Mercer, It is true that with parasitical hands I have endeavored to fasten chains of slavery on this my native country, although like the tenderest and best of mothers she has long fostered and powerfully supported me. But it was the inordinate love of gold which has led me astray from honor, virtue, and patriotism. These dying words epitomize the attitude of the colonists toward the men who had become agents of the crown in collecting the stamp tax. The Americans who had accepted appointments by the king were worse than the British because they had betrayed their homeland for the sake of wealth and power. In the eyes of the angry colonists, these men had sold out patriotism for tyranny, and their pragmatism provoked violent reactions from the same men who had once called themselves their compatriots. George Mercer, the target of such harsh protest even before his arrival back to America, had an understandably short-lived career. A week after Richard Henry Lee's demonstration, Mercer's ship arrived from England. When he saw the welcome that awaited him in the form of effigies and angry colonists and posters and protests, he knew he had made a mistake by accepting the appointment. As a matter of fact, he resigned his post the very next day. The violent demonstrations continued soon after, and they only intensified. In late October of 1765, New Yorkers outdid their fellow colonists in producing anger, violence, and danger. Again, widespread opposition to the Stamp Act and the fear of taxation without representation mobilized colonists and rapidly grew their numbers. All they needed was a definitive moment that would provoke them into concerted action. And that moment came on October 24th with a special arrival in the New York Harbor. On that day, a ship entered the port carrying the first shipment of stamped paper from England. The arrival of this paper marked the beginning of the full implementation of the Stamp Act in New York, and the colonists had no intention of letting this happen without a fight. When they heard that the paper had arrived, hundreds of colonists gathered at the port and refused to allow British troops to unload the cargo. They succeeded during the day, 
and the British waited until the middle of the night to unload the ship. The next day, when the colonists heard that the paper had, been, had made its way ashore, they organized a non-importation agreement against Britain. Their aim in doing so was to prevent any more paper from making its way ashore, and they also hoped to cause economic damage to England to the extent that they would repeal the Stamp Act. Word of the boycott against British ships spread throughout the northern colonies, and by December of 1765, over 200 merchants in Boston and New York had joined the non-importation agreement. The following week, the New York Sons of Liberty gathered a mob to publicly demonstrate against the Stamp Act, and their protest closely resembled the recent ones in Boston and Virginia. The crowd marched down Broadway, the main thoroughfare of the city, carrying an effigy of the New York royal governor called Wallader Colden. The protesters also managed to acquire Colden's personal stagecoach, and they added it to their procession. They paraded it to Bowling Green, Public Plaza in Lower Manhattan. Now, today, Bowling Green is located in the Wall Street area of New York City, and it's the location of the famous Charging Bull statue. When the protesters reached Bowling Green, they hanged Colden in effigy, smashed his stagecoach to pieces, and they burned it. Still enraged and even more energized, they then proceeded to the home of the British military officer known as Major James. They had been angered by James's threat to cram the stamp down the throats of the people with the point of my sword. So they responded to this threat by burning his coach, burning him in effigy, and tearing his house down. The retaliation of the Sons of Liberty made it clear to James that such remarks would not be taken lightly, and that the Stamp Act could not easily be forced down the throats of the colonists. The Sons of Liberty and other protest movements demonstrated, organized, and fought all over the 13 colonies in the wake of the Stamp Act's passage. The incidents mentioned here are by no means the only ones. They're just the most famous. There were even more violent incidents, including stamp distributors' homes being torn down in Rhode Island and Maryland, and British officials fleeing their colonies in several instances. Now, the acts perpetuated by the Sons of Liberty have been canonized and romanticized and politicized, and they can still teach us a few important lessons. First of all, the violent protests and riots in colonial cities show us that Americans have always valued having a voice in their government. When large numbers of colonists realized they had no voice in Parliament while it taxed them unfairly, they sought an alternative method of communication with the royal government. Unfortunately, this alternative method usually took the form of violence, vandalism, or general lawlessness. Hypothetically, one could argue that the colonists would have been less violent if Parliament had allowed them representation in the formation of tax policy. The Stamp Act protests are a case study in what happens when Americans are not adequately represented in their government. The lesson we can take away is this. Representation, especially in the levying of taxes, is essential to peace and order in the American political tradition, and governments ignore this truth at their own peril. Second, the colonists had already developed an appreciation for and a strong desire to preserve their God-given rights as recorded in the Rights of Englishmen. The concept of a fundamental right to life, liberty, and property is elementary to us today. However, in 1765, the idea of God-given rights and the idea that governments existed to protect these rights were relatively new, especially among the more common classes of the colonists. It's important to note how widespread these ideas had become because patriots like Samuel Adams and Patrick Henry worked tirelessly to educate the people. Moreover, we can see how deeply the message of Adams and the patriots penetrated the hearts of the colonists because the Sons of Liberty were not a large-scale organization that spread itself throughout the colonies. 
Rather through word of mouth, pamphleteering, and press exposure, the chapters of the Sons of Liberty sprouted on their own accord from the grassroots, and their members fought for the preservation of their rights from the whims of a tyrannical government. Eleven years later, these rights that the colonists had demonstrated and rioted for would be enumerated in the Declaration of Independence, and the Revolutionary War would begin. However, as John Adams declared in 1818, the revolution was effected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and the hearts of the people. This radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people was the real American revolution. The violence following the Stamp Act proves Adams' point perfectly. The Revolutionary War would not start for another 11 years, but the minds of the American colonists had already been largely revolutionized. Moreover, their ideas and beliefs mobilized them, and they took action to preserve their traditions of liberty and localized government. Now, the action that they took was largely violent, lawless, and reprehensible at times, but one cannot deny that their ultimate goal was the preservation of liberty and freedom from oppression, just as it had been when their ancestors left Britain centuries before. The Stamp Act prompted the first widespread popular protest on the road to the American Revolution, and once the idea of liberty was cultivated in the minds and the hearts of the general colonial population, there was no turning back. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoyed this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.